When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 171, Welsh Settlement in America. Settlement of the Americas by the English began in the early 17th century. The first lasting English colony arrived in 1607 as they established Jamestown in Chesapeake Bay. Within another generation, in 1620, another batch of colonists arrived. These ones were the Puritans, who arrived at Plymouth, and ten years later, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was established, which brought even more settlers to the area. Each of these colonies were begun for a variety of reasons, but relied on trade with Britain to continue to expand and to financially grow. This would mean that the settlers would arrive in growing amounts to this new world. Today, we are going to specifically talk about one Welsh group, but in order to do so, we need to give a fair bit of background. So apologies for going off on a bit of a tangent before we get back to the whole point of this episode. In 1647, in the East Midlands of England, a new religious group rose up during the height of the English Civil War, a subject we have not touched on yet, but will be doing so soon, from the Welsh perspective. George Fox, a particularly strong preacher, spoke against the English church. He'd been brought up a Puritan a group generally considered to already be on the extreme side of religious Christianity at the time. By the time he was 19 years old, he was not content with the Anglican Church, and his desire for purity of mind and body led him to go down a different road than many of his peers. There were many reasons for this. Fox was led by visions and voices, founded on an ideal at first that had a f the following at their heart. One, rituals are not necessary for conversion. That means baptism, con uh, confirmations, or any of that kind of thing. Any sort of the normal procedures of Christianity are not important and not necessary. Two, preachers and pastors are appointed by God, not by study. Education, if you don't have a calling, is meaningless, would I guess be the way they would be described. Three, religion goes beyond the church building. It does, and you can worship at any point and anywhere. And all of this can reach God. In fact, the Society of Friends, as they'll eventually be called, did not believe in churches as buildings that they should be in normally. And in fact, even to this day, do not refer to their own buildings as churches. Four, Inner belief should guide the convert as much as the Word of God did. Therefore, the Bible was a tool, but not the end-all for that person. 5. He saw no separation of the Trinity. In other words, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit were not separate in some way, but yet all one being 
all of the time. There is no trinity. They are the God. Fox began to spread his doctrine to the public across the kingdom and in Holland. Even went as far as Barbados in the English colony in the Caribbean to spread these ideas. The Dutch, along with the English and those in the Caribbean, all took to this ideal and thought of it important enough to continue to believe in it. Eventually, as would happen so often in this period, he was arrested for blasphemy. Fox continued preaching, though, and gained a large following within around 10 years. The Society of Friends, as they were known amongst themselves, or now known more frequently by the what at that point was considered a derogatory term, Quakers, the numbered in the tens of thousands at this point, and a sign that Fox's message was reaching a receptive audience. But their stance on authority put them at odds with the mainstream in a period where that mattered, and the Parliament, in the end, passed the Quaker Act in 1662, which set the form of prayer and worship that would exclude the Society of Friends from the mainstream even more. Going back to the 1650s, Quakers were making their way to America and creating friction with the local authorities in Plymouth and the Massachusetts colonies. The reason for this is because Quakers at the time were more confrontational than they are now. They would actually go to other meetings and sit in the back and effectively try and argue for why their religious beliefs were better, their understanding about the light of Christ and how it affected them as individuals being more important or at least as important as anyone standing at a pulpit or preaching or anybody, in other words, who was in authority or could be held in authority. They were very much sort of the anti-Catholics in that respect, but of a type that would conflict with their Protestant fellows as much as they would ever have conflicted with the Catholic ones. Mary Dyer was executed on June 1st, 1660 for preaching in Boston. She was one of many Quaker women who had settled in America and who had taken the religion out to the public and had been seen as being hostile to the normal Puritan ways. Of course, the irony of a, the Puritans at this point was they were perceived as a persecuted and left out group who had come to America specifically to try and create their own heaven on earth. And here this other religion comes in a similar nature, and they also are persecuted by the same group. This persecution and eventual execution brought a great deal of sympathy to the Quaker movement in America as well as in the courts of England. King Charles II was one of those who was sympathetic to Mary and set forward that Massachusetts Colony could no longer handle out death sentences to anyone claiming to be a Quaker. It was in this time period that Fox sought to get his movement around the law which was impeding them. Fox wrote out that the Quakers were intending to live peaceably with their neighbors and looked to remove the Quakers from any accusations of plot or fighting and demonstrating their innocency as he would describe it. To quote, All bloody principles and practices we do utterly deny, with all outward wars and strifes and fightings, with outward weapons, for any end 
or under any pretense whatsoever. In this moment, the pacifist beginnings of the Quaker ideal were founded. The message of the Quakers had reached many people during its time, but one in particular was a 13-year-old boy named William Penn. His father, Admiral Penn, also named William, was a leader in the Royal Navy and in a time period when his own life was in flux, had invited a Quaker preacher into his home to give a message, and that message had hit young William enough to change his life forever. Penn would become a preacher of Quaker belief from adulthood, and would eventually serve time in jail for those beliefs on many occasions. In 1669, after writing a fiery tract about the Church of England, he was tossed into the Tower of London. He would escape some of these incidences by the protection of his father, who would help to get him out of prison. But in later life, that wasn't always the case either. He continued to anger Protestant authorities and would serve time again in September of 1671. But during all of this fraught situation, his luck was about to change. Because of his father's noble links, he had been constantly linked with many of the kings of Britain. This meant he was able to leverage that relationship to try and protect his fellow adherents. So, when it came to light, after his father's passing, that Charles II owed a huge debt of £16,000, it was in order to help facilitate the payment of it that Charles went to William and offered a parcel of land some 29 million acres, in fact, and this area was at the time then known as West Jersey and would be a point where the Quakers could seek to separate themselves from the troubles of the old world in the new. The area, well known for its massive forest and greenery, became a place that Penn initially wanted to call the area Sylvania, meaning wood in Latin. There are some who contend that he also wanted to call it New Wales, as this was an honor to his ancestral homeland, and because the land appeared to look similar to Wales. In that the king had other ideas and changed the name to Pennsylvania, he claimed to honor William's father, but some suspect this was just to get around the Quaker sense of all being equal, which meant William did not want this area named after himself, but it's likely that Charles had actually meant for it to be named after him. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month 
Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. The founding of Pennsylvania and about 40,000 square miles was confirmed to William Penn under the Great Seal on January 5th, 1681. Penn immediately set to work to convince people to emigrate. Terms at the time being 40 shillings per hundred acre and shares of 5,000 acres for up to 100 pounds, which is a lot of land, especially when you look in England where land would have been much more expensive for even remotely anything like that, and you may not even find that much land. These were considered, of course, generous terms and induced many to set for the new world. The colony began initially without Penn, who was busy back in England trying to ensure that all was financially in place for the settlers and for himself. William Penn set sail to from England in August 1682 with Captain Greenway in the ship Welcome. The ship was filled with additional passengers, mostly Quakers with good estates. In other words, they were fairly wealthy, <laughs> let's be honest. They arrived at Newcastle on October 27, 1682, and the next day arriving at that place that would become Philadelphia. William at the time when they arrived, was 38 years old. Within a few days, Penn made a treaty with the Leni Lenape tribe to purchase his grant of land from them, and even though there was no law requiring him to do so, Penn had been insistent that he needed to work with and buy land from the local indigenous communities. This would then lead to a treaty which was set up as an example opposite of what had happened with many colonists across the Americas to this point, showing that peaceful cohabitation rather than aggressive militarism could work between the indigenous inhabitants and the colonists. In the years 1683 and 84, immigration increased, welcoming pioneers mostly from England, Ireland, Wales, the Netherlands, and Germany. 
Enslaved Africans and enslaved descendants of Africans were brought into Pennsylvania mostly by the English, Welsh, and Scots-Irish. In 1696, after a tumultuous time back in England, having been arrested several times for disloyalty, Penn returned to Pennsylvania to establish the landmark Charter of Privileges, which was approved in 1701. This particular charter, it has been argued, is a precursor to the modern Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights because of the things that it gave people. Obviously, the Quakers, very cognizant of their own problems, gave freedom of religion as a key tenant, gave a bunch of other freedoms which didn't exist in most of the rest of the colonies at this point. Welsh immigration to Pennsylvania was initially Welsh Quakers who were offered what they saw as a pretty good deal. In about 1681, a group of Welsh Quakers met with William Penn to secure a grant of land which then they can conduct their affairs in their own language. The Welsh committee, headed by John Roberts, or John Ap John, as I saw him mention in a couple of things, came to Penn wanting to buy land, but also to have assurances that they would be able to do so while maintaining their culture and language. As a part of this, they wanted a self-governing area which would allow them to handle their affairs internally and avoid having to get others involved. The parties agreed to a tract of land area covering 40,000 acres, about 160 square kilometers, to be constituted as a separate county whose people and government would conduct their affairs in Welsh. This second half of the agreement was not written down, which would then later create issues as verbal contracts are not necessarily as good as written ones. The committee, however, was satisfied and formalized the purchase at that point. As noted from the agreement itself, in quotes, whereas diverse considerable persons amongst the Welsh friends have requested me that all the lands purchased of me by those of North and South Wales together, with the adjacent counties to them of Herefordshire, Shropshire, and Cheshire, about 40,000 acres may be laid out contiguously as one barony, alleging that the number come already and come and mm. alleging that the number already come and suddenly to come are such that will be capable of planting the same much within the proportions allowed by the custom of the county so not to lie in large useless vacancies. And because I am inclined and determined to agree and favor them with any reasonable convenience and privilege, I do hereby charge thee and strictly require thee to lay out the said tract of land as uniform a manner as convenient may be upon the west side of the Skulkill River. I'm sorry if I massacred that running three miles from upon the same and two miles backward and then extend the parallel with the river six miles to run westwardly so far as this said quantity of land be completely surveyed unto you. This was given by William Penn on the 13th of March, 1684. Settlement began well with the largest body of settlers in the future state to be made up of Welsh people. As mentioned in previous episodes, the issues in Wales were acting as push factors that were allowing people to be attracted by the pull factors of the land that would be cheap to purchase and free of landlords and others looking over their shoulders to gain advantage over them. 
the Welsh Quakers generally became wealthy either before or after this, and likely because they were from middle and upper class families initially rather than poorer settlers, they were able to use that wealth to help them cross the Atlantic, to purchase the land, and to develop the land into a very wealthy area for themselves. As settlement in Pennsylvania grew, so too did the different amounts of people coming to settle in the place set aside for religious freedom. In general, those of English ancestry settled in the immediate Philadelphia area, while while the Irish settled in the Wilmington area, and the Dutch and Germans, which included Quakers, Baptists, and Moravians, settled in the Germantown area. The townships of Marin, Haverford, and Radnor became the homes of the Welsh Quakers in what they hoped would be the Welsh tract, which would act as a barony within the province, within which all cause, quarrels, crimes, disputes, and others might be tried and wholly determined by officers, magistrates, and juries of the Welsh ancestry and language. In August of 1682, the first Welsh immigrants arrived from the county of Marinmissure in the north of Wales. They came to Pennsylvania on the ship Leon, sailing up the Schuylkill River as far as it was safe to do so. It was at that point that they disembarked. Its passengers would then walk on to Pencoid. These early settlers wrote home to their friends, expounding on the natural resources in their new homeland. In a letter from Dr. Edward Jones to John App Thomas, Dr. Jones described the five thousand acre purchase from Penn in these words. I hope it will please thee and the rest who are concerned, for it hath most rare timber. I have not seen the like in all these parts. There is water enough besides. The end of each lot will be on a river as large or larger than Dai in Bala. It is called the Schoolkill River. The general Eden-like appearance appealed strongly to these new settlers, and comparisons were raised consistently about the beauty of the land and its biblical quality. Whether this was actually their opinion, or rather people adjusting to a new land and finding reasons why they were there, is something we can only really guess at, and whether or not they were kind of bigging up the area to convince others to move so that they weren't so lonely, is again something we can only really guess about. Though this agreement was established and acknowledged to be a Welsh land very soon after, this idea came to nothing. As though the area was surveyed and boundaries were set out in 1687, the Welsh tract was never formally enacted. By the 1690s, the land that was supposedly to be a single entity was carved up and claimed by the other counties in the area as the administration and governance of Pennsylvania was settled. The Roberts and other Welsh families that had moved to this area became influential through the building of mills and the eventual introduction of the railroad and many years later, it was how they began to earn their money. It is the railroad that gives the best known part of the area its current name, the main line, named after the main line of the Pennsylvania. After this American Civil War, 104 Welsh families from this region migrated to Knoxville, Tennessee, establishing a strong Welsh presence there. As suburbanization spread westward from Philadelphia in the late 19th century, thanks to railroads, living in the community with a Welsh name acquired a cachet. 
Some communities in the area formerly comprising of the Welsh tract were then subsequently given Welsh or at least Welsh-sounding names to improve their perceived desirability. Kind of reminds me of people who give themselves uh, kanji tattoos and they don't actually know what the kanji is and neither does the tattoo artist. And so they do a Google Translate version of it, um, which always leads to some interesting flavor. Among these were Gladwine, um, formerly Marion Square, which was given its new name in 1891, although the name is meaningless in Welsh. Bryn Mawr, formerly Humphreysville, was renamed in 1869. Of course, this idea of changing names into more Welsh names, the irony is not lost on me by any means, as, of course, this is a current debate in Wales over the changing of names to more anglicized naming and how that's influenced attitudes and opinions in Wales and has a lot of political conflict going on right now. With that, thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or you can always reach me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook. You can join us there at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And if you would like to help fund this little project you can do so at patreon.com forward slash welsh history thank you everybody for listening have a great day we'll talk to you later take care goodbye this has been a distractions media production and for everything we do check out distractionsmedia.com the battle of waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history but what happened next my name's david montgomery and i'm the host of the siecla a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.